My name is Callie Nixon. I'm so excited to be with you all. Um, I am wife to Ryan, like Gigi said, and um, he is sexy, tall drink of peppered-haired water that walks around here and helps with our marriage ministry. So we love marriage. We're real proud of marriage, and we're real passionate about it. Um, we, um, together, we have three kids, two girls and a little boy, and they're super cute. And right now, we're playing musical chairs with what's called the influenza virus. And uh, the two girls have it right now, so they're down. And little teeny bubbies just hanging on quite strong. So if you're a big fan of Russian roulette, afterwards come up and let's just embrace for a long time. <laughs> and we'll see what happens. Um, but like Gigi said also, I usually serve on our worship team here in Dallas and at Plano. Hi, Plano ladies. We love you all so much. And you all, since I usually am used to serving this body with my singing voice, you will either be excited or not that I get to speak words of encouragement to you this evening because... Most people, when they get nervous and I'm a little nervous, they get like kind of huffy and they get their pit sweat. And I have this weird like tick where I just, I get a little inappropriate. And I don't mean to, I promise, but things come out that just create bad word pictures or it just, it happens. But I've prayed about it and I'm going to be the picture of decorum tonight so you have nothing to worry about. Um, for real, we're here tonight to just learn and encourage each other as we already have with Cheryl and to connect with one another and to an encounter an almighty God and come away changed. And so I want to start off my time connecting with you all tonight by telling you a story. It's a story about a little girl. This little girl was born to incredible parents. They adored her and the God who made her. She had amazing and righteous parents, and she was even told by strangers often how lucky she was that she had such incredible parents. She grew up privileged, passionate, and adored. She fell in love with Jesus from a really young age and loved him with all the passion her little heart could muster. And if there's one word to define her, it really would have been passion. She was passionate about her friends and her family and having fun and her little budding faith. And she didn't like to disappoint people, and she didn't like to disappoint the Lord. And all that passion took kind of an interesting turn when she hit the age of sexual exploration. Sexual exploration gave way to an awakening, which gave way to a desire, which gave way to sin. And that sin for her came in the secret of lust and masturbation. By the time she realized what it was and how wrong it was, it was too late. She was hopelessly addicted. And Satan had her number, whispering thoughts into her ear. You know, you can't love Jesus and do this. You know, you can't be a strong believer and be addicted to this. And if you fail in this area, you are in fact a failure. You're evil and you're a disappointment to the gospel. The picture of the next 10 years for this little girl was a cycle of sin, catastrophic guilt, sworn repentance, and then promising God she'd never do it again. This precious little girl was missing two very important pieces. The first one was she hid it. This is not a concept that's discussed at church youth summer camp, ladies. <laughs> this was not something that was openly talked about, so she didn't tell a soul. She hid it in accolades and achievements with being someone that others could look up to. Her downfall was believing the lie that if anyone knew her secret, if anyone knew her shame, she'd be ruined. She'd be unloved and unlovable. But it wasn't hidden. It wasn't hidden from the one who knows all things from the one who perceives our thoughts from afar, 
from the one who discerns our going out and our coming in. Now, I imagine you'd respond to this girl in one of a few ways. You'd kind of either be like, oh, like, sorry, precious, her poor parents, it's embarrassing, you know, like, or your shoulders might kind of sit up in your chair and like look down at your nose at this little girl and be like, PTL, that's not me, y'all. You also might be another, on the other side of the, the chasm and your shoulders might be slumping in your chair because you're like, that's tame compared to what I've been through. That's tame compared to my story. Or you might be kind of confused and be like, what's the big deal? Doesn't everyone do that? It's fine, isn't it? Well, I want to tell you tonight that it is not fine. And the girl in the story is me. And I want to stand over here and let you take a good long look, including the leather spanks, because that's important. <laughs> and I want you to know that the woman before you tonight is a total mess. And I was addicted to the sin of lust and masturbation for over 10 years. And it is a hard story in many ways. And one that I've begged the Lord many times that was not mine, but it's also now a story that I carry around like a badge of honor, of redemption and forgiveness to the glory of my God and to the good of people that I get to share it with. And so tonight I'm gonna share with you a little more about my story. You're gonna learn more about Callie than you ever wanted to. And we're gonna tie it into a woman I can relate to in God's word. And ultimately, we are gonna discover what it looks like to rest in our identity. Not to fight it, not to try and earn it, but to rest. To rest in this God who knows where we've been, he knows what we've done, and he loves us anyway. And so because Jesus loves me, we are going to be in John 4, which I was just so sad about because I wasn't going to have time to read it to you all. And then due to lack of communication and the Holy Spirit speaking to Beth Bernard, she already read the whole darn thing for you. So thank you, Beth, for absolutely listening to Jesus telling you to read that text because it's just made me, I literally was crying in worship. I'm like, I wasn't going to have time and you did it. So... It's just amazing. So we go back. We're going to go back to John 4, back to that little town of Sychar. Sychar was in Samaria, and Samaria was kind of this place of Jewish misfits. In verse 9 in chapter 4, it said the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So if you look at the map on the screen, there were strict Jews. And strict Jews who were going from Judea up to Galilee... They, didn't, they took what could have been a short three-day journey just by taking a straight shot through Samaria. And instead, they crossed over east, over the Jordan, went north through Perea and the Decapolis, and then crossed over the Jordan again. So a journey that should have taken three days took five days. And then this Samaria, there was this woman, and there she was at the well. And Christ and her ended up having this conversation about living water. He reveals things to her that only an all-knowing God could know. And she ends up saying one of my favorite verses in John 4, 29, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So I wanna make three observations about this text tonight that have had an impact on my life and I hope some of the truth blesses you as well. The first one, looking at verses four through eight, is he knew where she'd been. He knew the things about her, her environment, her upbringing that maybe she didn't have control over. He knew she was a Samaritan. We know that Jews didn't like Samaritans. She was poor. She drew her own water. She didn't have someone to do it for her. She had a poor reputation. So most people would go to draw water in the cool of the day. But in the text, it says it was the sixth hour, which in Jewish time would have been noon. So the full heat of day. At the very least, we can assume that she didn't want to run into a lot of people. She also was a woman. 
That alone in first century Bible times worked against you, like Cheryl talked about. The disciples had left to buy food. And in Jewish culture, men did not speak to women alone. And so already we have this Jesus breaking stereotypes in so many ways. In verse six, it says, Jesus stayed behind weary from his journey. Side note, don't you love the humanity of Jesus? I wanna serve a God that I can relate to. I wanna serve a God that when he's been walking for six hours, he is tired. That blesses me to know. I get tired after walking long places. He got thirsty. I wanna serve a God who has experienced what it's like to be thirsty. And he stayed behind. And do you think that this was coincidence? Do you think that Christ was like, oh, shoot, a woman. Do I talk to her? Do I not? No, he didn't. There is no happenstance with Christ. We are on his divine playing board and every moment of our lives is known before it's even been lived. So in the same way he knew her, he knows me. He knew I'd be a daughter of righteous parents. He knew I'd constantly get told how lucky I was to have those righteous parents. He knew I was gonna struggle with pride and fear of failure. He made me a passionate woman, curious, vivacious, an intense lover of all the things. If you know me, like how I hug, how I describe food, how I like will tell anyone who's ever lived the entire story of The Greatest Showman without any shame at all, because it is the best movie that's ever happened to my life. Yes. But at the same time, he knew that that would cause me to live in secrecy when I messed up because I didn't want people to know about it. So we find in the story specifically in verses 15 through 19 that he didn't just know where she'd been, he knew what she'd done. So he tells her to go and get her husband. And we read in verse 17, the woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying you have no husband because you have had five husbands and the one you live now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. He knew her guilt. He knew that this was an immoral woman in the same way he knew what I'd done. He knew that even though I had told no one, he knew every poor choice I'd made. He knew the guilt I'd hid and he knew the ways that I tried to busy myself to keep from dealing with the sin that was in my life. And how did Jesus respond to this woman at the well? He loved her anyway. Verses 21 through 25, he didn't condemn her. Like we saw in verse 17, all he says is, you are right, what you have said is true. Yeah, this was even a totally different response than he was going to say in John 8 later when he finds the woman who's caught in adultery. And so to her, after he keeps her from being stoned, what he says is go and sin no more. But he doesn't say that to her. And, it, and we wonder why, because he doesn't let her past define her future. He shared truth with her. He became the remedy for her. He offers her the living water, the kind where she would never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's verse 14. He pursued her anyway. Verse four says he had to go through Samaria. I love how Beth said he needed to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't need to go through Samaria. His going through Samaria was not a geographical necessity. Most Jews did not. His going through Samaria was a necessity of the mission that he was on to capture his beloved. His pursuit of you is a necessity of his mission to capture you, his beloved. 
He tells her who he is. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I told you all we've had a lot of sickness in our house. So we've been watching a lot of shows and the Lion King's kind of a favorite. And so I think about this and I think about the point where the hyenas are like, they say Mufasa and everybody like shivers. And they're like, do it again. I just think at this time, like this is, this is literally the first time that Jesus is declaring to someone he is the Messiah. Don't you just picture the ground rumbling just a little bit. He is declaring that he is the Messiah to a Samaritan woman who was immoral. He loved her. And I'm convinced that he loves me anyway. Earlier I mentioned there were two things I was missing in living with my struggles with lust and masturbation. First thing I said was confession. The second thing was just God's intense love for me, a love that included forgiveness. I carried my sin around on my shoulders for 10 years before allowing the glory of letting someone else in and receiving that forgiveness that comes and literally unburdens us of the yoke of our sin. Now, I mean, I was afraid. I was afraid I'd be rejected. I was afraid I'd be too much but confession's still worth it. Now, did I start by telling a room full of 2,000 people, H, no. (laughs) I told you discipline, see? Because I prayed. No, I didn't. I told one woman over bagels in Waco, Texas. And you know how she received it? She received it with grace. She makes me cry because she's over there. Because I remember that day. And then I told someone else. And then I told someone else. You know how they received it? With grace. Then I told my mom. (laughs) My mom, y'all, I told my mom. The very person whose righteousness I was so afraid to mess up. And do you know how she received it? With grace. Ladies, now I would tell a room full of 10,000 people because I don't care because he loves me anyway. So in the same way he knew everything about that Samaritan woman, he knew everything about me. And in the same way he knows everything about me tonight, I want to submit to you that he knows everything about you. He knows who you are. He knows how you made you, how you grew up, the parts of your story that you have no control over. He knows that you were a child of divorce. Maybe you grew up in poverty and your parents neglected you because they were trying to make ends meet. Maybe you grew up in wealth. And your parents neglected you because they would rather have money be your parent than actually them be your parent. Maybe you have a chronic sickness or an injury. Maybe you've experienced immense loss at an early age. You've been wounded and he knows your pain. In the same way, he knows what you've done. He knows the sins that you've committed in the dark. The ones that you said, I don't give a rip and you've committed in broad daylight. He knows about those too. He knows the lies you've told to advance in your career. He knows that man you went to high school with that you've reconnected with on Facebook lately. It's not a big deal. Your husband doesn't need to know. The kids are so exhausting, you know. So he's an outlet. It's fine. He knows. He knows about your daydreaming, about the men, or even about the women who are unavailable to you. He sees you every time you're in the bathroom pushing and pulling on parts of yourself that you thought if they're just a little bit tighter, you'd be a little bit happier and you could probably serve God better. (laughs) 
Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight, it says in Hebrews 4.13. He sees it. It's no secret to an omniscient God. But maybe that person isn't you tonight. Maybe you aren't like me where you've brought guilt and shame upon yourself. Maybe life has hit you hard. You're here and you aren't interested in a God that can call you out on what you've done. You wanna know that there's a God who sees you in what you've been through. And to you, I say, be comforted. In the same way he knows what you've done, he knows what's been done to you. Several Bible scholars have taken a different look at this scripture on the woman at the well. You know, first century marriage and cohabitation was super different back then than it was now. It was extremely difficult for a woman to get divorced. She had to have a man speak for him. So many people believe that instead of being divorced five times, what if this woman had been widowed five times? What if in that moment at the well, one-on-one, what Jesus was doing as he looked into her eyes was not exposing her guilt? What if what he was doing was acknowledging her pain? What if in that moment she encountered a God that loves her? Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're encompassed not by guilt and shame like I was, but by bitterness. And that is separating you from wrapping your tired arms around a loving God. He knows. He knows what your uncle did to you when no one was looking and you were a young girl. He knows the physical abuse you went through at the hands of your step-parents. He knows the guy who slipped the thing into your drink at the college party and took advantage of you. He knows how it destroyed you when your dear friend committed suicide freshman year at Villanova University, a great basketball player, a promising person. He knows he was there. He knows you're living every day with cancer or something else that's terminal and 2019 is not a sure deal for you. He loves you. He is there in the moments that your heart is breaking and his heart is breaking too. And I don't know why he's chosen to give you the pain that he's given you, but he's with you and he wants to take it and he wants to carry it for you. So whether his love for you tonight needs to reside in forgiveness or healing, it's here for you right now. Do you know that he would go through the rankest of places to get to you? He would go through all the Samarias to get to you. Do you know that the God that allowed this man to talk to this woman would eventually let him die so that we might live? He would raise him from the dead three days later so that we might have victory over our sin and our flesh. This is the God that we serve. And if you don't know him tonight, I wonder if your little booty is in this little seat just so that you might ask someone afterwards, about this God, to know that you are seen, known, and loved by the only one whose opinion of you matters, to know the God that knows where you've been, what you've done. He knows what's been done to you, and he loves you anyway. And I just want to ask you in closing, what are you holding on to? Is there something in your life that you feel like, man, if anyone knew, if anyone knew they'd reject you? Here's what. Guess what? Truth, they might. It would be uncomfortable. There are a lot of women and men and people in this world who cannot handle transparency and discomfort. But you want to know what? God won't reject you. He will champion you. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord knows I'm not going to reject you. I've seen it all. 
There's nothing that's a surprise. There are women who will be down here afterwards who want to talk to you tonight. They're not going to reject you. What do you need to yield to? I don't like the picture of surrender. I, th- I think, think surrender is like a like bank robbery. Hold up like, oh, I give up. Surrender. He's Jewish. I don't know why. <laughs> That's why I don't like surrender. I like the picture of yielding. I think of yielding as like a weary soldier, battle-worn, chest-heaving, strength-exuding, who chooses to walk towards his king and bow down on his knee because he trusts him. Job twenty two twenty one says, yield now and be at peace with him. So yield tonight, ladies. Yield to the God who adores you and rest in your identity as the one who is highly favored by him. Thank you.